Welcome to Imagine With Us podcast with Rabbi Michael Lerner and Kat Zavis. In this third episode, we discuss the importance of grieving. Grieving is the foundation for healing, repair, and transformation. During this time of COVID with unprecedented numbers of people sick, many people feeling lonely, both due to the restrictions on gathering with others and with the holidays approaching, the stress from job insecurity and loss, increasing economic struggles, greater awareness of the systemic injustices in our society and the environmental catastrophes, allowing ourselves to tap into our individual and collective grief is critically important. I'm going to start by talking for a few minutes about the importance of grieving in more detail, not only on the collective level, but also in our individual lives on the personal level. And as I just mentioned, I believe that grief is the birthplace of healing and repair and transformation. So healing is the foundation for repair and healing and grieving are the bedrock for lasting transformation. We cannot deal with the environmental crisis or any challenging situations in our lives until we look at and grieve where we're at, what has happened to get us here, and our fear of how hard it might be to get where we want to be. So when we grieve, we allow ourselves to begin a healing process. And then we can reflect and look at the choices we've made individually and collectively and take responsibility for our mistakes and be accountable. This allows us to make amends and repair whatever harms we may have caused. It also allows us to forgive ourselves and others. When we are not sensitive to our own and others' grieving process, we can end up impeding the transformative process. Prior to healing, it is really important to take responsibility for our actions and hold ourselves accountable because our egos want to protect ourselves from the self-judgment and criticism that is the precursor to healing, a self-judgment and criticism that we've spoken about in our discussions of shaming and blaming in previous podcasts that make it so hard for us to be willing to really look at ourselves and allowing us to challenge or encourage others to look at themselves and their choices because we are so steeped in a culture of shaming and blaming that it impedes our capacity for truly healing. Healing allows us to engage with those hurts and griefs from a much more compassionate place rather than a place of judgment. If we approach ourselves or others from a place of judgment for past wrongs, whether individual or collective, inevitably we would feel defensive. People respond to claims of having done wrong when approached in a shameful way with defensiveness. I like to call it like the shield goes up to protect their heart and their being from those what can be perceived as insults rather than an attempt to help people understand where they've missed the mark. So It's really difficult for us to learn new information about ourselves or others when we're in a place of defensiveness. So it's important for us to think about how we can approach people in compassionate ways while still challenging behaviors and systemic structures in our society. When we are called to challenge, and this is really important in this moment in history, Um, both individually again and collectively, but when we're called to challenge or look at our pasts and really reassess and re-examine our understanding of the past, what ends up happening is we end up being forced into looking at our very understanding of who we are and who we believe ourselves to be as individuals and a country. 
And this is really painful work and it's difficult because when that happens, we feel as if the rug is being pulled out from under us. If what I understand or what I understood to be true generally or what I knew or thought to be true about myself or my family or my country or my community is actually different than what I grew up understanding or knowing, it feels ungrounding and uncertain and scary. In this process, we need to be gentle with ourselves and to acknowledge that this is a journey that's challenging and to hold ourselves and our hearts and other people, even when it's difficult, with tenderness. I believe that grieving is important because it pushes us to look at our past, not through the lens of who's right and who's wrong, but rather through the lens of trauma and suffering that has existed through the creation of our country from its founding to the present. And it allows us to move beyond that judgment into compassion, which is gonna be a much more effective place on which to heal, repair, and transform our country. We often avoid grieving because we live in a society in which we're taught to not grieve, to not really feel the full depth of our human experience. And when I say that, I mean on both ends of the spectrum. We often don't want to feel the depth of our pain and grief, and we also don't really feel the depth of our joy and excitement. And if you cut off one end, you end up cutting off the other end and narrowing your experience of of being a human being with the full range of emotional experiences that we have. And so we avoid grieving because we're told so often that you should get over it, you shouldn't grieve. And often when we're in pain or we see someone else in pain, we wanna do something, anything to try and fix what's wrong and get us out of our own pain or help somebody get out of their pain. We wanna escape being present with just the feelings, the uncomfortable feelings. I always like to say, it's hard to learn to be comfortable with discomfort. So we might seek more information to try to help us understand or make sense of what is often seemingly incomprehensible. Or we try to convince other people of the error of their ways. Few of us are taught and therefore are able simply to be present in the moment with all of our emotional turmoil and angst. Yet I believe that is exactly what we need to do, that act of simply being human, if you will, rather than doing human. That is the critical first step before we can move to action. Because without this stage, without being present with the angst and the pain and the discomfort and reflecting on it, our actions may very well derive from a place of reaction rather from a place of thoughtful reflection, a place that allows us to take into consideration strategies and getting feedback and determining how best to proceed. And when we fail to slow down enough to allow ourselves to be present with our grief, our choices often arise out of our short-term needs to fix or change the situation rather than approaching the situation from a broader, more long-term perspective. And we see this in the area of social change because often we're looking at short-term immediate fixes without stretching and working toward those longer-term changes because the short-term changes if we win them, they make us feel good. We kind of have that good feeling inside of us when we, if we're succeeding in a short-term incremental change. And that's important work. And at the same time, we need to be striving for those long-term changes that create the systemic changes. And so slowing down and being reflective allows us to look at both and, the short-term and the long-term. Obviously, if we're in the midst of a tragedy, and we need to protect somebody, life, or provide emergency support, or even emergency food, 
of course we do that <laughs> and we get engaged and we're seeing that all over and it's wonderful to see people stepping up in these times of crisis and taking care of those immediate needs. I want to read a poem from Hafiz, a Sufi poet, and its poem emphasizes the importance of allowing ourselves to sink into our emotions and grief. He speaks in this poem about loneliness, but I think we could substitute the word grief as easily as loneliness in this poem. And in this time, in this particular time with COVID and isolation and holidays, obviously loneliness is another emotion that's very present for all of us. And the poem is called My Eyes So Soft. Don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can. Something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need of God absolutely clear. As a society, we fail to allow ourselves to grieve the horrors in the world, the violence, the devastation, the destruction of our planet. And yet, because we are embodied beings and because our bodies are made of the same elements as the earth, and because we are socially connected beings, we can feel in our being the pain and suffering of the planet and of others. When we mourn and grieve as a society, we can begin to heal the world. Also, if we fail to grieve as a society, we can actually avoid taking responsibility for our choices. There are so many different directions of grieving today that I think we have to acknowledge them all. And I'll start with the tremendous impact of the pandemic that has now reached the level where over 13,575,000 Americans have suffered, contracted COVID-19. Many of them have died, over 240,000 have died from it. But we shouldn't just look at the most extreme consequence because there are many others who, having suffered from it, have ongoing problems in their physical health. That will be with them often for the rest of their lives, or they may die a lot sooner than others would. So as a rabbi, when I lead the Shabbat services, uh, we say Kaddish, a prayer for the dead for so many people who have died each week who are uh, suffering from the pandemic. Of course, there are many who have argued, I think persuasively, but we won't go into it right now, that the pandemic is just a first a sign and product of the destruction of the environment that has been going on for a long time. And it's really can be looked at as one of the plagues and early warning of yet greater devastation that's going to face our planet unless we transform it in a variety of ways to be less destructive to the life support system of planet Earth. But then there's other levels of grief that are not as dramatic, not as in front of us, but that are very real. On a global level, there's a, a huge inequality of wealth and income that cause tremendous amount of pain in people's lives. The latest figures say that Close to 10% of the global population is living on less than $2 a day. And that that means that every year we have between 6 and 8 million people who are dying of starvation. Okay, and this in a world where the rich countries have a huge amount of excess in the way of income and in the way of healthcare, in the way of food that could be shared. 
The economic inequality is something that has grown rather than decreased in the United States. Over the course of the past 40 years, the income inequality has grown dramatically. So now we have 10% of the population with owning close to 80% of the wealth. The bottom 80% of the population, 80% of the population owning less than 20% of the wealth. We've never seen anything quite as extreme as this. And this plays out in people's daily lives in a variety of ways, but it means that a great number of people are suffering from economic inequality and wanting to struggle against it or wanting to feel that there's some way that that can be relieved. Then you would think that that would lead then to a massive movement to change our economic and political system. But that is not the case. And it's not the case because there's another set of needs that people have that also are not being met, but are not being addressed adequately by the liberal and progressive forces in this country. The people who recognize the seriousness of the economic deprivation, but don't realize that there's another kind of deprivation that I call a spiritual and psychological deprivation. In fact, if we're going to call the economic crisis that hit our country in 2007 to 2011 and the even greater economic deprivation that is going on right now as a result of the loss of huge numbers of jobs and people not getting the care that they need and with President Trump still in power, not willing to continue aid that is desperately needed in this that has kept many people from starving to death, literally, in this country, that is now disappearing. And so people are hoping that it will return once the new administration takes power. But in the meantime, there's a great deal of concern there. But the other deprivation that I want to talk about is if we call that economic deprivation the Great Recession of 2008, and we could call it the same, the Great Depression, really, of what's happening right now with failure to deliver the economic goodies to people who are desperate, then we should also call something that I call the Great Spiritual and Psychological Deprivation that is happening in our world today and in our country today. This is a deprivation that's based on the deprivation of love, generosity, respect, and community. People hunger for some deeper way to connect to their lives, a deeper that is not just about material goods, but a deeper purpose in their life, a search for not just material well-being, but for some connection to a higher meaning. And that is critical to people's lives. It's as important as the material needs. I don't mean to be in any way denying the importance of material needs. They are also important. But the forces that have articulated the material needs have failed to simultaneously address the spiritual and psychological needs. So the great deprivation of psychological and spiritual needs is something that really draws people to political organizations and political movements that don't really care about the economic deprivation, or they care about it, but they don't actually support programs that would would deal with it. So this hunger for meaning and purpose in life manifests in a whole variety of ways. 
And people deal with it uh, on an individual level in a variety of very beautiful ways, trying to volunteer to help other people, trying to create art and poetry and music and dance and many other things that begin to fill the spiritual needs that people have. But unfortunately, often that is done on a solely individual or small group level and doesn't yet take the form of a social movement that is able to challenge the dominant ways that people feel abandoned, alone, not supported by the larger society that we're in. These feelings are generated in large part by the dynamics of the capitalist marketplace and its ethos of selfishness and materialism. In the daily reality of people's lives, they go to a workplace in which the bottom line is maximizing money and power. And people are taught that their worth is dependent on how much they can contribute to maximizing the wealth and power of those who own and control those institutions. They come home feeling that this selfishness is just a fact of life that can't be changed. But the truth of the matter is, is that this selfishness undermines all of our efforts on an individual or a collective level to create a world that is sustainable. It undermines the capacity of people to believe in the possibility of a social movement that could change this world into a world that is not based on selfishness, but is instead based on love, kindness, generosity, caring for each other, and caring for the planet. Unfortunately, without that, then people feel like, well, if there is no such movement, if there's no movement that understands this, that can challenge uh, the emptiness, the materialism, and the selfishness in the society, then they're left on their own to try to deal with it. And the way they deal with it mostly is to say, hey, if this is how the world is, then it's unrealistic to think that anything different could happen. Because even if I personally, or me and my friends personally, want to overcome it, we believe that everybody else is not going to be able to overcome it. They're going to stand in that selfishness. And yet that hunger is there. It's a deep hunger for meaning and purpose to life. And that deprivation is one that causes some people to go to drugs or alcohol or, or other ways to suppress their consciousness of this because it's so hurtful, it's so aching in people, and yet they have no language to use for it. They think that they will be seen as silly if they talk to their friends or even their spouse or their children about the possibility of a world without selfishness. They think that that's going to be dismissed as utopian fantasy. Instead, many people come to adopt that selfishness themselves, and yet they're in pain about it. They don't like it. So this is one of the things that we discovered when we were interviewing and creating groups, support groups for people in the Institute for Labor and Mental Health, that there was a great hunger for a different kind of world. And yet nobody articulates that to themselves, much less to their families, much less to their communities. Instead, they accept the way that it is. And then the only place that they can find some discourse of a different sort is when they go to a religious institution or engage in a spiritual practice. But often they find that those are denigrated, knocked down in the world, and particularly, sadly enough, 
knocked down in the liberal and progressive world where it's often hard for people to articulate that they really want not only what the liberal and progressive world wants, which I totally support, namely a dramatic reduction in economic and uh, and income inequality and the deliverance of basic material needs to all people, not only in the United States, but around the world. I want to circle this back a bit to grieving, to tie in what you're speaking about. As I'm hearing you speak, it's making me feel more strongly about the importance of grieving because really what you're saying is that people try to alleviate their pain and suffering in a number of ways, but there's not necessarily awareness, self-awareness of what that suffering is or what that pain is or what that great deprivation is. And so if we slow down enough to reflect on our society and the ways in which it leaves us feeling so lonely and isolated and feeling like we have to struggle even against those we care about to get ahead, then our souls hurt, our beings hurt, our hearts hurt. And if we could individually, but even more importantly, if social change movements could integrate into their movements, slowing down enough to name this, to name this pain and grieve it, then it will give birth to a different form of movement, um, collective movement, and also individual healing that will allow us to recognize the importance of interim fixes, but also, because you were speaking about being realistic, but it would also allow us to move beyond that, to be so bold, to be visionary, to imagine a completely transformed world. And so to just tie it up, that that to me is a piece that as you speak about this, that the grieving and the naming and acknowledging this pain could be part of, as I like to talk about, the birthplace of healing, repair, and transformation. I'm curious your thoughts and reactions. Well, my reaction is, of course, that you're 100% correct and that that social movements really need to, A, name the psychological and spiritual deprivation, the great deprivation, I call it, the great deprivation, to name it as a central problem for people's lives and a central concern for liberal and progressive movements. But secondly, they then need to bring that in, not just as another throwaway line at a rally, (laughs) right? You know, or the, I love you to everybody here, I love you all. No, I mean... You have to integrate this into the actual daily practices of a social change movement and of the liberal and progressive world. As you present the method of getting into grieving, you give people some sense that it is actually possible to do this. Because grieving is not something that comes naturally, except when people A, recognize the loss, B, understand that it wasn't inevitable, and C, allow themselves to feel deeply that loss of something that they really wanted, but didn't even know that they wanted when it comes to a hunger for meaning and purpose or for a a world of respect and love and caring and kindness and generosity and feeling connected to other people who are similarly embodying uh, love, caring, kindness, generosity. People often understand that they want meaning and purpose in their life, but they don't think they're entitled to it, or they don't think it's their birthright. 
And so they think they have to toil away at a meaningless job and put aside their search for meaning or potentially find some avenues to access and embody that and manifest that in their lives. But then they don't grieve that that's like a sideshow, if you will, to their real lives. Right. And it's really that we really come here as beings who actually want connection and belonging and meaning and purpose. So they might be aware it's not there, but they don't allow themselves to grieve that it's not there because you're just told from a very young age, well, you can't have the job of your dreams. You have to make money and be a cog in the wheel in one way or another. That's the message. Also, so many adults don't even recognize that need in themselves. So they don't understand it when they're children. And it's often the case that children from ages three to seven really have this desire and try to articulate it. But their parents and their teachers at school think that this is not something that's appropriate for them, that it doesn't make sense to the parents, it doesn't make sense to their teachers. So quickly, this is channeled into something less disruptive than grieving what's not there. So by the time that they've grown up, so to speak, and they're living in the the world of the grown-ups, they've come to learn deeply, intuitively, that grieving is not something that they should be doing, except <laughs> if their parents died, or you know, or God forbid, or except if they've been in an accident. But actually, the biggest accident they're in is the accident of having been born in a society that doesn't recognize the hunger for meaning and purpose and for love and kindness and respect and gives any of that out very in very narrow ways and only in ways that never connect it to the social order that people are living in. And all of the messages given to them, both in the world of work, but also in the television, in all the movies, etc., the narrowing of their focus to sex, to uh, a successful relationship or to domination of other people or, or in a variety of other ways, not allowing this deep hunger to even be acknowledged or articulated, much less to feel the loss of it. So grieving is so important because it can break through all of this if we can get people into grieving this loss. The ways that you lead groups, Kat, seems to me miraculous in that you're able to move people to that grief. And I think that your skill needs to be taught to a few million social change activists, (laughs) at least. Maybe you want to talk a little bit more about how it can happen that you get people to get through all the barriers and in touch with their grief. Whenever I lead grieving circles, whether it's in my training or at events that we hold, whether it's through Bait Tacoon services, high holidays. high holidays, or in other capacities, you never know if it's going to quote-unquote work, you know, if people will allow themselves to go there. And so I think there's a few things that are important to put in place, if you will, or a container to create that can allow people to go there. One of which is, of course, having a level of trust in the community and in the connection. So in my trainings, I don't even begin to talk about grieving or lead a grieving circle until the fourth week or so, so that people have a sense of safety and community. At this particular historical moment, I do believe that people are more conscious of the need to grieve and the loss of grieving around the deaths and sickness of COVID, but also the economic losses that have arisen because of it, and also the lack of interpersonal connections. Like None of us are able to be in physical being connections with other people. 
for most of us, even our spiritual communities are not meeting in purpose, in person, excuse me. So there's a lot more awareness around it, but still I think people are afraid to grieve for a number of different reasons. One of which is we're told from extremely young age not to cry. Big boys don't cry, get over it. You're overreacting. We're afraid that if we tap into our grief, we'll never come out of it. And so I always want to say if there's a depth of grief and a personal level in particular that you're afraid you won't come out of, it's really important to have the support you need to make that safe for you. Collectively, we need to create a container so that we can do this work. And so I try to take people through a process to allow them to do that. And I'll just mention some of what I do. And we obviously are not going to be doing that on this podcast today, but we can just talk a little bit about it and you can ask any questions or reflections. Often if we talk about grieving, people resist. So you have to meet that resistance with compassion and empathy, with curiosity, and not to just try to bulldoze past it, but to really be present with that. Sure, because they're going to say, what, me? I don't need to grieve. I mean, other people need to grieve, but nobody in my family has died from COVID, so why should I grieve? Or I'm not suffering enough to entitle myself to grieve. Right, and so I try to frame this in the context of, in particular in this work, the collective grieving we have around the Great Depression that you're speaking about, around walking down the street and seeing the explosion of homeless people and hungry people or reading articles about the lines and lines of people waiting to get food at food banks and the sense of shame they feel about that and they're just hungry. And when we allow ourselves to look at that, then we're more likely to be able to tap into it. And so I ask people to close their eyes so that we're not seeing each other because even looking at each other in the process can make people feel so uncomfortable. So I invite people to close their eyes and just name, physically name out loud, some of the things that they're seeing in the world that are painful for them. And so people will name a number of different things, you know, knowing that all these people are dying from COVID, seeing people on the streets hungry, uh, watching videos of polar bears starving because the ice is melting. I mean, they range all over the board and you just let people name that and express that. And I like to start in words so that people feel comfortable because we're most, much more likely to tap into things when we express them in words. And then after we've expressed it in words for whatever amount of time seems appropriate, Then I actually ask people to find in their body a place where they feel the sadness because now it's been named, so much of it's been named that people might be able to find that place in their heart or their belly or their jaw, perhaps, wherever it is that they're feeling some of this sadness and to put their hand on it if they're comfortable and to see what sound comes out from that. And so now I'm inviting people into just literally sound expression and for some people this is comfortable and they do it and it's easy for other people it's extremely awkward and they just witness and hear and they express the grief in sounds i just do that until it feels like that's been expressed and then i ask them again to name anything else that's come up in terms of their grief in words so we might go through that a second time and then a really important piece about a grieving exercise for me is to not end there (laughs) Because you don't really want to end people in this place of such deep grief and sorrow without also helping them envision something different and imagining something different. And this relates back to what I said earlier in terms of grieving being the foundation of healing and repair and transformation. So in the exercise, it's the foundational start to envisioning something different. 
So I lead a meditation where they can imagine a transformed world and that image of people getting involved in participating in transforming the world and then to call out and and that's a much longer i do a whole meditation with it i'm not going to go into all of that but then when they have this vision of millions of people being involved in a movement to change our world so that we're not seeing hungry people on the streets so we're not seeing melting icebergs so that we're starting to see a transformed world where we're healing the planet where we're taking care of each other where we're showing up and caring with our genuine hearts that they start to call out what they see and what that world looks like. And it becomes this incredible vision of this exquisite world of what's possible. And people are feeling so excited and inspired. And so it, it ends up leaving folks in a hopeful place. And that's really important. And it's, you know, it's a fundamental component of your book, Revolutionary Love, that can help people see what that world would look like because you have lay out a whole vision of that in a beautiful way in your book. Not surprisingly, the vision you put forth in Revolutionary Love is a vision that is shared by so many people. And their vision fits with and is often enhanced by your vision. And in the book, you articulate a vision of what's actually possible because as you've said so many times and we've spoken about so many times, the only limitation to what kind of world we can have, the world we yearn for, is both our own visions and our own willingness to struggle to get us there. The world that we live in right now is not mandatory. It's not fixed. It's not set. It's not what it has to be. We as human beings have an incredible opportunity to participate in bringing forth a world that is so loving and so just and so caring and so exquisite. I hope that we can all find our ways of engaging to bring that world into being. Amen. So I want to bless all of our listeners that each of us finds a way to get in touch with your hunger for meaning and purpose in life and for your desire for real love and caring, not just with your closest people, but to be in a world where people are motivated by love to care for everyone on the planet, to support social transformations that make that actually happen. I want to bless all of you and all of us that we can more and more connect with other people who share the same desire, because that's the key to The transformation is that we not only need to have that internally, but we need to have other people who also move in that direction. So thank you, Kat, for your beautiful presentation and uh, look forward to being in touch with others next week in our next session. Thank you for joining us for Imagine With Us. We hope that you can imagine with us a beautiful, awesome, transformed world. Please follow and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please share this with your friends and invite them to follow us as well. You can become engaged with our work and learn more about us at tikkun, T-I-K-K-U-N.org and spiritualprogressives.org. We'd love to hear from you. To reach us, you can email me at cat at spiritualprogressives.org. Be sure to include the subject heading Imagine With Us. And you can buy Rabbi Lerner's book, Revolutionary Love, at tikkun.org slash revlove. Special thanks to Emma's Revolution for their amazing music. You can hear more of their music at emmasrevolution.com. And you can follow them on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. 
And we're recording this today on December 1st, which is Giving Tuesday. And so we would be so appreciative if you're appreciating our podcasts and our work, if you would consider donating to support us so we can continue to bring you our podcasts and our work. And to do that, just go to tikkun.org slash donate. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support. Mm -hmm.